The immune system is a complex network designed to protect our bodies from harmful invaders. But sometimes it can turn on us, attacking our own cells and in doing so causing autoimmune disease. Over the last 50 years, research into our immune system has advanced to identify particular drivers that protect us from autoimmune disease. Researchers are learning how these responses are tuned under various environmental and genetic circumstances. Our guest today is working to understand these fine-tuning aspects and how we can manipulate them through the advent of cheaper and faster DNA sequencing. Hi, I'm Mara Jean Tilley and this is Medical Minds, the podcast of the Garvin Institute of Medical Research. In this series, we're diving deep into the minds of our amazing researchers to find out how they tick and how they are working to make our lives better. With me here is Professor Rob Brink, Head of the B-Cell Biology Lab and Director of Translation Science at Garvin. Welcome, Rob. Thank you, Maradine. It's an absolute pleasure to be here and to have a chat to you about the work we do today. Rob. As the head of the B-Cell Biology Lab at Garvin, can you start by explaining to us what B-cells are and why are they so important to our immune system? Well, B-cells are one of our white blood cells uh, that are involved in the immune system and why they are particularly important is they are the cells that produce antibodies. So you've probably heard of antibodies in all sorts of scenarios. The COVID vaccines, for instance, are all about generating antibodies, so what B-cells do is identify foreign things that enter our bodies, such as viruses, and then the very select few B-cells which can make the antibody that can be effective against an infecting virus, for instance, are activated and then go to work to produce antibodies that can then neutralise the foreign invaders. So that's their most important role, uh, and that's why we have them. Why they're also important and why we study them is... A lot of the new drugs that we have these days are actually antibodies uh, that have been engineered to target a particular molecule involved in a disease. And so there's a huge pharmaceutical industry involved in producing antibodies as drugs. And again, COVID was another example of that, but there are antibodies which have been generated to fight uh, all sorts of diseases, including inflammation, arthritis, etc. So seeing how antibodies, how B cells work, how they produce antibodies, and being able to harness the antibodies they produce, are incredibly important in how we are able to fight disease, but also uh, how we can produce drugs to fight disease. So what's the difference between B cells and T cells? Well, they have complementary roles to play in the immune system. They're very similar. They have different molecules they use to fight infection. Actually, most of the time, B cells require help from T cells to produce antibodies. So that's one of the major ways in which T cells work. The other thing T-cells do is to attack things like tumours directly so they can unleash their destructive power against tumours by themselves without getting B-cells to, to be involved. But they basically work with each other, complementing each other's activities to destroy invaders like viruses and bacteria, uh, but also to fight off uh, internal challenges like tumours. Rob, you're a world-renowned immunologist and the Director of Translation Science at Garvin, what is it that you and your team are trying to achieve? We're trying to find out the basic rules behind how B-cells make antibodies when they're supposed to and what goes wrong when they're not supposed to. 
antibodies are really effective at, at, at fighting off infections, if we know from the coronavirus pandemic. We've developed the models where we can actually see what B cells are doing inside the body and look at how the processes are occurring, the interactions they're having with other cells, the, the, the rules that they're following to produce antibodies. Because producing antibodies against an infectious agent, such as a virus, that's why they're there. But things can go wrong, and a lot of diseases, autoimmune diseases, are due to B cells actually producing antibodies that attack our own body. And so one of our major focuses is actually to develop ways in which to see why this happens, why an immune response goes wrong and produces an antibody that can cause an autoimmune disease as opposed to one which is going to fight off a virus. And so that's a basic challenge behind having an immune system. You, got, you have this destructive capacity inside you or this capacity to produce destructive molecules and it has to be exquisitely targeted against the things you want to get rid of but at the same time spare the body itself. Uh, because of that destructive capacity. You mentioned arthritis earlier. So it's one of these types of diseases. Arthritis is definitely one of them. That's when uh, antibodies are produced which attack the joints and produce inflammation in the joints. Another common one is a, a disease called lupus, where antibodies are made uh, against you know a variety of molecules, but particularly DNA itself, you know, which is inside every cell and which, which also floats around the body. That can lead to inflammation throughout the body. There are lots of um, autoimmune diseases. There's, there's about 80 different ones in which the body attacks various pieces of our own body, like uh, there's a Shrogan syndrome, which attacks the salivary glands, and there's a, another one called Guillain-Barre syndrome, where it attacks your peripheral nerves. So, And they're all kind of special cases of, of where the immune system's been led astray. And so what we're looking for is the underlying common thread behind a lot of these diseases, whether there is one, but also, you know, looking at the specific cases of why that particular part of your body is being attacked by the immune system. And Rob, are these diseases triggered more by genetic inheritance or by environmental factors? Well, I think, as is often the case, the answer is both. <laughs> uh, we know, for instance, that particular infections can trigger autoimmune diseases. And so there's a type of heart disease where there's a particular virus which kind of looks a lot like a molecule in your heart, a streptococcus uh, infection. So it's particularly uh, prevalent amongst Indigenous communities and so a particular problem there. And, but they produce antibodies that are directed against the bacteria, but they, what we call, cross-react to the heart muscle. So, so sometimes you can get, it's called a molecular mimicry, to use the, the, the technical term. You have these antibodies that your body's being pushed to make because they're against the foreign invader, but they're also attacking a part of the body itself. So that's a real challenge, one which we need to get around for those susceptible communities. Um, there's a number of examples of that. That's cases where there's a clear environmental cause. The genetic causes are coming through for a number of autoimmune diseases. They're usually complicated, like there may be multiple genes involved. Some have a stronger genetic predisposition. What's also becoming clear is not necessarily an inherited mutation which can trigger the autoimmune disease. There are mutations which can occur in your immune cells. You know, you don't have them in your brain or your kidney or something. They, they're picked up during immune responses. And uh, Chris Goodnow's lab at, at Garvin is particularly focused on this, identifying the type of mutations which can happen in your immune cells and lead them astray to produce autoimmune responses. So the causes are seem to be myriad and, and, and maybe different for different diseases, but we're really learning a lot about them as we drill into the, to the genetics of the cells that are, that are making uh, immune responses. How far have we come in understanding immune responses, say, over the last 50 years? 
Where are we up to and what do we still need to find out? Well, about 50 years ago was the first time we realised, you know, we didn't just have white blood cells as an immune system, but there were two types. There were B cells and T cells, the two main types. These days, the number's probably closer to, you know, 30 to 40 different types of cells. And I guess one of the things we've realised is that all the different types of immune cells, although a lot of them are related to each other, they've specialised in particular types of immune responses. And so, so that's one way in which the field has advanced over the last 50 years. One thing we were able to do maybe 30 to 40 years ago was find out a lot of the particular drivers which are essential for immune responses. So people with immunodeficiencies you know, often have mutations in these particular genes and through experimentation, you know, you won't make antibodies if you don't have this gene, etc. Over the last 20 years, we've been able to look at some of the things which tune the immune system to go one way or the other. So you can make an immune response, but it swings it towards an allergic response, for instance, versus a response against a, an invading virus to potentially an autoimmune response. So, so learning how the responses are tuned under various environmental circumstances or in different genetic environments, when people have particular genetic profiles, that's where the, the work is going on at the moment and appreciating these, these fine-tuning aspects and how we can manipulate them through the, the advent of cheaper and faster DNA sequencing so we can really interrogate the genes expressed by individual cells these days. Rob, you've acknowledged that the immune system is highly complex and at one end of the spectrum we experience autoimmunity. What does the other end of the spectrum look like in terms of immunodeficiencies? Well, immunodeficiencies can range from being able to make virtually no immune response at all. So those of you who remember the boy in the bubble, that was the, the classic case of someone who really had no capability to fight off infections at all. But the immune response can, can go in all sorts of directions, you know, from having no immune response to those, you know, unfortunate individuals who aren't able to make an immune response to being, you know, slightly deficient, you know, not able to respond to particular bacteria, but okay with others. But also there's the allergy side of things, which has long puzzled us in terms of, you know, why would we have an immune system which produces allergic responses? But historically it seemed that that was developed for a particular types of parasites and so it was particularly effective against them. In the modern world it's not really necessary anymore, but it gives us these allergic responses. So it's a bit of an evolutionary hangover. But that's another example of the huge spectrum of immune responses that are around. I mean, fighting off tumours is another one. And, you know, a lot of the new therapies for cancer are all about enhancing that particular capability of the immune system to recognise and fight off tumours. So our immune system can do an incredibly wide range of things when required, as well as do things we don't want it to do. And so understanding that has been one of the things we're still doing. We've come a long way in the last 50 years, but um, there's still a lot to find out. You mentioned cancer immunotherapy, and if I understand correctly, 20 years ago this was something that many scientists did not even believe was possible. Can you talk us through what's changed, and how is it that cancer immunotherapy now has such incredible impacts for certain patients with particularly aggressive cancers? Well, you're absolutely right, Marajane. When most people scoffed at the immune system having any role in fighting off cancer at all, and that's as recently as 20, 25 years ago, the, the turn of the millennium. What really carried that through into a, being a key therapy these days was a small group of people who were working on the type of molecules I was talking about, the things that aren't required for immune responses but are responsible for tuning it up or down. 
and working with mouse models. So this, all this foundation work was done in, in mouse models and finding out if they produced antibodies against these particular regulators, they could tune the immune system up and down to make it more aggressive or less aggressive. And so and that's effectively what grew into the, the cancer immunotherapy as we know it today. We know now through the efforts of these people that the immune system can recognise tumours a lot of the time but they just can't get enough activity together to, to fight off the tumour because there's this balance between fighting off something within the body itself and something you know, we want to get rid of like a tumour. So uh, the cancer immunotherapies effectively take the break off the immune system by blocking these regulatory molecules and so uh, allowing the immune system to, to become more active and get over this hurdle to get rid of the tumour and treat it like it's an invading virus or an invading bacterium. So, so that's been a great, great success of fundamental research in animal models and antibody production turning into what's now a real key therapy for cancer. A key focus of your research is gene editing using something called CRISPR-Cas9. Can you tell us why this is such a revolutionary leap in science? Well, I love CRISPR-Cas9 and one of the main reasons I do is because it's actually a bacterial immune system. It was something evolved by bacteria to fight off their own viruses. There's a virus called a bacteriophage, which infects bacteria and basically makes them burst open. So uh, way back in the evolution of bacteria, they evolved a way in which they could recognise this viral DNA when it gets introduced into the bacteria and send a particular enzyme, which is called Cas9, which cuts up DNA. So that's basically what it does. It can actually recognise a piece of viral DNA and that it's different from its own DNA and send the Cas9 off to chop it into pieces and therefore inactivate the virus. So again, it's a classic immune system problem. It has to tell the difference between the invader and itself and then send off the destructive capability to specifically attack the invader. So it turns out that it can be manipulated into an incredibly powerful tool for bioengineering, but at its heart, it's an immune system, which, you know, which is extremely clever. Another example of evolution finds solutions to these sorts of problems. So this is a living, breathing organism that's being activated to change DNA. It's a molecule inside the bacteria, which it activates to go and cut up the DNA when, when the invaders come in. So it sits there, not doing much, but it responds just like our immune system, really. A, a completely different mechanism, but the same end result. And how do you use CRISPR-Cas9 in your research? Well, CRISPR-Cas9 even though I just described it as a, a bacterial immune system, the fact that it can target DNA and introduce changes into DNA, that is its power in applying to research and to biotechnology. So we're able to use it to make changes to the DNA of immune cells, of any type of cell really. It's so versatile and so efficient. So if we want to, for instance, we have a, a bunch of patients who carry a mutation in a particular gene which we think is causing immunodeficiency, but we're not sure whether that's the actual cause, we can actually introduce that mutation into some immune cells, into a mouse. We can look at the immune response and actually prove whether that's the, the cause of the disease. And then we have a model in which we can study it and develop therapeutics for that particular disease. So gene editing is the process of cutting up bits of DNA. Can you take us through exactly what that means? How do you cut a gene and splice it into the DNA you want? Well, in basic terms, we give the uh, Cas9 protein I was talking about before, which is able to cut DNA, we give it a, a, like a postcode. This one has like 20 letters in it, actually, and that gives you a, like a one in very large number address 
to find within all our DNA. So we have 3 billion bases. And so the chances of having that exact 20-letter code uh, is pretty much just, just one per all your DNA. And so the real power of it is able to seek out a particular piece of your DNA, a particular part of a gene, and locate the Cas9 there to cut the DNA. And then by a number of different processes, we can introduce a change that we desire. And a lot of time, you know, we might be modeling just a single chain. I mean, you probably know DNA has A, C, G, and T. So a lot of the mutations will be a C is changed to a T. So if we want to model that mutation, we can use the Cas9 to introduce just this single change so that the C is changed to the T, and then we can then see what the effect that has on, on the animal and whether it gets the disease. On the flip side, we can also take cells which have a mutation, and this I think is one of the, the real future uses of, of CRISPR-Cas9 and correct a mutation back to what it's supposed to be. How long before this technique will be ready for use in humans? There are clinical trials going on already. There are various levels of complexity in what you can do with CRISPR-Cas9. You can inactivate an offending gene, and so in relative terms, that, that's relatively easy. There are more subtle changes which we're going to want to use most of the time, which are a bit more complicated, but these sorts of things are, are, are happening already for particular diseases, which are amenable, and we're just going to see more and more of that over the next decade, really, when um, I really see a time where, where a lot of diseases will be able to be cured by actually reversing the genetic change which caused them, as opposed to giving them a drug which they need to take for the rest of their life. So I think that's going to be huge. Can you give us an example of how this could be used in practice in the clinic? Well, one way we hope to contribute soon is, is in the case of, uh, it's usually children who have inborn errors, mutations, which make immunodeficient. And some of these are very serious. I mentioned the boy in the bubble previously, and then you, you have kids who really can't fight off infections, so they have real problems with their life, a really tough life ahead of them. At the moment, the treatment for these kids is they can get a bone marrow transplant. So your bone marrow is where your immune system is generated. So a child who has a mutation which gives them a defective immune system can get a bone marrow donation from, from someone else. The new bone marrow can generate an immune system which doesn't have that mutation, but they have lifelong problems with uh, having a foreign transplant in them. Suppressive drugs, the, the process is very taxing. I mean, it does alleviate the basic problem, but it comes with a whole bunch of other problems. So the ideal treatment for someone like that is that we could actually take out their own bone marrow, correct the mutation, and put it back in them. So they had a functioning immune system, but they had none of these problems with foreignness of their, of their transplant. So there's complete compatibility between the, the body and the immune system. And so we believe that this will be something that will be happening soon, this ability to do what we call autologous transplants, which will effectively be a lifelong cure for these sorts of diseases. So the holy grail really is if we could actually modify the patient's bone marrow cells without even taking them out. So that's another thing we're working towards because having a bone marrow transplant is not trivial even if it's your own. You know, you have a long, long time in hospital and your immune system needs to, to reform, etc. But ultimately what we'd love to do is be able to deliver the gene correction machinery, the CRISPR-Cas9 machinery, into the body to find the, the bone marrow stem cells, correct them in the body, and then cure the patient like that. So that's going to take a bit longer. That's an extra set of targeting technology on top of the basic gene correction technology, but that will happen too. And so that, that's particularly exciting. Let's talk about mouse models. Why are they so important in medical research? 
Well, I mentioned a couple of examples already, you know, so the mouse models allowed us to develop the basic ideas behind um, cancer immunotherapy by allowing us to treat animals to see if we could activate their immune system to fight cancer, for instance. And, you know, these are things we can't do in in humans or in practical terms in in primates. The great thing about mice, as I also touched on, is that we're able to manipulate their their genes quite easily using techniques like CRISPR and really drill down on the genetic basis of disease by using them as models because one important thing about the mouse models we use is they're all genetically identical. So we can make a particular minor change in a gene in one mouse and compare it to another mouse where they're exactly the same except for that change. So that's always a problem with humans unless you've got identical twins, who uh, you can't genetically manipulate, of course. You always have the genetic diversity that creates a lot of noise in, when you're doing research. So mouse models are incredibly important in being able to do controlled experiments to actually drill down on what a particular molecule is doing or, or how it's affecting things. It's important to add, though, that, that everyone who's doing work in mice proposing experiments of any type needs to get approved by an ethics committee made up of lay people and, and people involved in veterinarians and, and other scientists. So all of this work in mice is tightly regulated and only work which is ethical and which is believed to be advancing knowledge or treatments of health is allowed to pass. So, you know, I think that's an important point to make. Rob, speaking of allergies, is it true that you're allergic to mice? That is true, Marajine. How did you know that? <laughs> yes, I became allergic to mice during my PhD studies, actually. Um, and a certain fraction of, of people uh, do become allergic to mice. And again, we don't 100% know why that is. But uh, I was a very good positive control for the mouse allergy test that was developed in the clinical immunology lab when I was a student. <laughs> I set it off the charts, apparently. So, And I ended up in... Um, emergency at Royal Prince Alfred one day. So whilst I work with mice these days still, it's, a, it's at a distance. I have you know, students and postdocs who do the, the hands-on work. So. Rob, did you always want to be a scientist? Uh, no, I don't think I did. <laughs> when I was a child, I wanted to, you know, play rugby for Australia and or do something like that. Uh, and then I also wanted to be a sort of scientist, an archaeologist. So I, di- I didn't really get into wanting to be a biologist immunologist until I went to university and sort of saw the amazing things that the immune system does. And what do you love most about your job? What I love most about my job is working with a team to solve really hard problems, thinking about identifying something which we need to find out, to find out something basic or something that will be able to be applied and working out, you know, these really hard problems and a way around them and how we can work together to come up with a solution or see things that we haven't seen before. And obviously when all that comes together and works, that's when it's, that's when it's really rewarding. What does a typical day look like for you at Garvin? Well, um, I, these days I do a bit of admin on top of running my lab. So I'll have meetings with various people from around the Institute regarding HR, etc., and the broader organisation. Uh, but I also meet with people in the lab, talking about their experiments, their latest results, going through them with them, and also run a facility where we make genetically modified mice, and so I talk with the, the people in that team. One thing happened today, uh, completely coincidentally, is that uh, I was talking to someone in the, in the foyer, and I saw out of the corner of my eye one of my students sort of running across the... Uh, from the lab, and they just got a fantastic result in a, in a system we'd been working on for years. Uh, and she was really excited, and yeah, well, and so was I when she told me what happened. So, uh, so they're, they're, the really, they're the really great moments. What's the most surprising thing about having a career in science? 
this is only really something I've, I've found since since coming to the Garvin over the last 15 years or so uh, has really put me in touch with donors and people who philanthropically support our research. And I'm always, I guess, gratified. It kind of surprises me because you know, sometimes we were working in the lab, we feel like, you know, we're working away, we're doing the thing we're interested in. But to, to really see the, the enthusiasm and support of people from outside the lab who want to support what we're doing, that's really gratifying. And that's something which really helps us keep going as well. You're at a senior level of your career. What advice would you give to aspiring scientists? Basically, I think the number one rule is to do something you're passionate about because without that, you won't get anywhere. However, you do need to be a bit clever about what you end up doing. It, it is a very competitive area. I mean, there's limited funding. There's lots of people who want to work in this area. So it is a blessing, really, to be able to work in research. But to really think about what you can contribute, what's an important problem to solve and something you think you can work towards making a unique contribution and, and talking to people and, and getting advice about how you can get there. There are lots of problems we need to address, but you know, to see something where you see there's not so much attention being paid to it, but it is an important problem, and identifying that and going for that, that would be my, my main piece of advice. Rob, it's time for the Fast Five. What do you do to relax? Top of the list would be to throw myself into the ocean. I find that's a great way of uh, resetting your mind and your body and, uh, and I always feel better after that. So, Favourite music? Oh, well, I like to think I've, you know, pretty open-minded, but I do have a particular liking for the, the 70s and 80s and that sort of music, which I know you partially share, Myra Jean. So. I largely share, <laughs> as we found out at a scientific retreat <laughs> some time ago. That's right. Do you have any secret skills? My secret talent is, for some reason, I'm able to remember song lyrics from said songs from 70s and 80s. And I'll, and I'll hear a song which I haven't heard for 20 years and, for some reason, remember the lyrics. I wish I could remember people's names with the same efficiency, but, yeah, song lyrics just seem to stick. Any pets? Yes, we have a, a little Cavalier King Charles Spaniel called Ollie, who is a brown and white striped spotted dog who just went on holidays with us and is a very nice and affectionate lapdog. Speaking of holidays, your last trip. Oh, well, you catch me two days back from my last trip. My wife and Ollie, the dog, uh, went for a two-week road trip up to Queensland, up back Queensland, uh, into the desert there, and then back across to the coast and uh, to Stradbroke Island and Crescent Head. So... That was great, and I'm still adjusting to uh, being back at work. But, uh, yeah, that was a lot of fun. Professor Rob Brink, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you very much. It's been my pleasure. If you'd like to know more about Professor Rob Brink's research or the work we do at the Garvin, head to garvin.org.au. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review and share with other podcast lovers. I'm Mara Jean Tilly. Thanks for listening. This podcast was recorded on the traditional country of the Gadigal people of the Aora Nation. We recognise their continuing connection to land, waters and community. We pay our respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander cultures and elders, past, present and emerging.